Hi, welcome to this week's Seacoast Vineyard Podcast, coming to you from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We hope this message will touch your life in a meaningful way and that you'll be encouraged in your journey with God. Good morning, church. How is everyone? Doing well? Good to see everybody, and this is your first time. Welcome. We're so glad you're here and uh, meeting more of our uh, folks from up north who are making their way to the beach now for the winter time. And if uh, any of our snowbirds are here, welcome. We're glad you're here. It's always good to see you this time every year. Um, did any of you guys see the on the news or maybe on the, in the newspaper, it was also in a lot of the blog pages on the internet, the recent Pew Research poll results on religion in America. Did any of you guys happen to read that? NBC had it on, CBS, ABC. They all made a little blurb, and they made a big point out of uh, this statistic that now there are 20%, 20% of Americans would classify themselves as non-affiliated, or the nuns as they called them, N-O-N-E-S, non-affiliated, that is people who are not affiliated with any church, that now there are 20% of the population who say, I have no religion, I'm not affiliated at all with any particular group. And that's up like 15%, they said, maybe in the last five years. And so uh, everybody was, you know, making a to-do on the, on the news programs about how we're becoming much more of a secular society and less of a religious culture and uh, less of a religious country, and uh, I don't necessarily agree with that. I read through all the statistics, looked at their charts and all of that, and a guy named Ed Stetzer that uh, I really follow kind of closely with his interpretation said that, well, it's not all bad news at all, because what's happened is that middle group of people who always used to call, go to church, what he called the squishy middle. That is people who probably went to church just because they were raised in church, or maybe would answer a question like, do you go to church with, yes, I go to church, but really weren't committed to Christ and weren't committed to trying to seek out exactly what God is after in a person's life, uh, that that middle group has now started to remove themselves from even admitting that they have any association with church at all. And Ed was like, that's not bad. All it is is means that those folks who were maybe afraid to say, I don't get it, are now saying, I don't get it and are basically pulling away. And so he says what that does is it leaves room for the committed sinner now to be able to be known and uh, to be known in, in the United States, and that is those who are really committed to Christ. Anytime you start talking about church and you start talking about organized religion, I love that term. When someone says I'm spiritual, but I don't believe in organized religion. And uh, anytime you bring up the, the topic of money, or the topic of giving, some of you just cringed, just, just, I saw it, you know, this little nervous tick, it's, it's like you got to this point where you, I knew it was coming, I knew Tim was going to talk about this eventually, but anytime you bring up that aspect, that, that non-group, that non-affiliated group that the Pew Research points out, uh, Pew Research Council points out, they get very nervous, As a matter of fact, 70% of people in that, that category say the church is about nothing but money and power, that's all it's about, but here's the, here's the really, I don't, I don't guess it's surprising, but here's a statistic that maybe you didn't know, 47% of people who say they are affiliated with church say the same thing, that all the church cares about is money and having power. 
over people's lives or in situations. And so if I'm to believe these statistics, I believe this morning there's like 47% of us in here that may feel that way at the same time, or maybe more. And uh, money is funny, isn't it? How we start talking about something like money and we get so sensitive. And I think this is much more an American thing uh, than it is, you know, a worldwide dilemma because I know people in other parts of the world and I know that it's not, it does, it's not that sensitive of a subject if you're in some countries in Africa. I know it's not uh, that sensitive of a subject if you're down in Brazil, if you're down in South America and some places like that. It seems like in America, though, we are extra sensitive when it comes to any time, especially in the church, or if some preacher or somebody stands up and starts talking about giving. Well, we've been in this series on mega myths for the last, um, what, eight weeks, and uh, we're going to be bringing it to a close here. And I want to talk about a myth that I think really sets us up from some disillusionment, and that is the myth that I don't make enough, nor do I have enough to give. It's like, Tim, you don't understand my situation. I don't have anything to give. Well, is that what God is after? Is he, is he after? Is the church after you having a lot to give? Is that what it is? Or is God after something much more deep in our lives and richer in our lives than the amount of that giving? And so I, I really want to look at that today. I mean, last Sunday we talked about forgive and forget. Is that, I mean, that's a myth, to forgive and forget. Is that what God expects from us, to forget everything that uh, has been done to us that hurts us? Is that even... Is that reasonable to forget that? But think about forgiving. Giving that forgiveness to someone means that you are giving someone something they don't deserve, right? They don't deserve that. That is, if Christianity is about anything, it is about giving, forgiving, giving. And uh, I mean, what if we did forgiveness like we did money, like we got so nervous about it, or like we only give 10% of our forgiveness? But I can only give you like, I don't have enough to give you, man. I can forgive you about 40% of the way. I'll get there on the 60%. The other 60%, I'll get there. But what if we just looked at life and all of our giving as followers of Jesus and what God expects from us in giving who we are and what we have? I mean, and we just get very nervous about it. So you guys can pray for me as we jump into this. You can say, help Tim as he navigates this minefield, because I'm not going to navigate a minefield, okay? We're just going to walk right straight through it. If I lose some limbs in the way, on the way in this, that it'll be okay. So you're going to pray for me. We're going to walk through this, because this is a part of discipleship. How we treat what we have and how we put it at the disposal of God's kingdom has everything to do with that third part of our mission statement that we want to mature as a people of power and purpose. We want to grow up. We want, to, we want to be grown adults in our spiritual life. And how we steward, how we steward what we have and what God has given us makes all the difference in the world. And it's also, as we're going to see, a part of our worship as well. How we worship God, how we treat what God has given us. So you guys can pray for me, and I'm going to pray for you, and we'll pray that the Lord will come and, uh, and he'll teach us this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that... You have come to be the Lord of our life. If you are Lord, it means that no one else is and nothing else is. And we as followers of you, Lord, we really do want your kingdom to come, your rule and your reign in our life, every part of it. 
So I ask for you to help me this morning, God, as I endeavor to talk about a subject that in America is a very sensitive one. But we want your truth, Lord. We want to hear your word. We want to hear your heart. And so we ask for you to speak to us. Breathe life on your word. Help me this morning. Holy Spirit, come. Capture our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So is it true you have to have enough to give? Is that true? You have to have a certain amount in order to be able to participate in giving. Who gives? Let me just let me give you a little survey. Who gives in the church? I don't mean I'm going to name them. Okay, I, remember we saw that video a few weeks ago. I'm, I'm not going to read a list of names, but let me just tell you who are the faithful givers. And th- I think this is true in any church. Okay, who who are the faithful givers in a church? And this is true in our church. The volunteers, the people who are involved in this church and who give their time, and the ones who are here serving. These folks are the faithful givers. And that's not just true in our church. That's true in any organization. Once someone becomes a part of it and they begin to participate in it, they start giving to it. And so volunteers are faithful givers. A third of Americans attend church on a Sunday. And that's the statistic. Maybe around 32, 33% of people are in church this morning. Those 33% of which you are part of give 67% of all charitable contributions. And that includes for non-religious uh, enterprises, not just Christian. Do you get this? You guys give 67% of all the contributions to all of the different groups, not just church groups, but other groups that are feeding the poor, that are doing good works all over the world, you guys support them. The church supports them. People put down the church and talk about giving. Well, the church is the one that stepped up to the plate and is giving to this. I mean, we can be negative and the, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, those non-affiliated can say the church is 70%, can say the church is all about money, but the church is the one that stepped up to the plate and is doing the vast majority of the work and giving and seeing that uh, Operation Christmas Child and different ones are, are doing this. They're the ones drilling the wells. I mean, I got friends that are over in Africa. They're drilling wells, South Sudan, drilling wells for people, trying to get clean water to them. It's the church that's doing that, doing the vast majority of the work. You know who else gives in the church? Committed Christians, not that squishy middle. Not that squishy middle. They don't, they don't give. It's not the squishy middle. It's the committed center. People who are committed to Christ and who take this spirituality, this thing of living for Christ seriously, they give. People give. And can I tell you something else? People who give the most complain the least in church. That is a fact. In 30 years of doing this, I can tell you that's the truth. I heard a story the other day of a pastor who he got a letter from someone that was leaving the church because he said, I don't like the, you talk too much about giving in the church. You talk about money too much and I don't like where the money's being spent either. So we're going to have to leave the church. And, and so the pastor looked at it and he thought, well, I need to write him back. I appreciate him telling me how he feels. And so he said, I think I'll just check his giving record. And so he checked his giving record and he sent him a letter back and he said, I'm going to return the money that he's given to the church. If he's that, if he's that disillusioned and you know, he's that unhappy. Let's give him back what he's given. And, and so he wrote a letter 
to the man and he says, I really appreciate you being honest with me about the way you feel. I'm sorry you feel this way and I just want to give you back um, all your contributions. Oh, look, you haven't given anything. I'm sorry, I won't be able to give you any money back because you haven't given any money to the church and yet he had complained so much and that's normally the way it goes. We're going to be over in 2 Corinthians, the 8th chapter this morning. Uh, one of my favorite parts of uh, this book because of the generosity that is expressed by a church, the Macedonian church. We're going to take a look at it. Is it true that we don't make enough to give? Or we don't have enough to give. Now, let me just set this up and say that this church, this Corinthian church, the church in Corinth, uh, maybe you remember there's, if there's a 2 Corinthians, there's a 1 Corinthians. And if you go back to the first book in your Bible, 1 Corinthians, you find out that this church, though it was a very exciting church, uh, they, had, uh, they, they were partying down, you know, regularly. And, um, I mean, they would have, you know, all the gifts of the Spirit operating in their church except one. And um, I'll tell you about that one in a minute. Uh, they would, in this day, they didn't have buildings like we have now. They would meet in their home. And most of the time, the churches uh, that met would meet in a wealthier member's home because the wealthier members had bigger homes. And I think our, the last archaeological book I read, I think the biggest home they found during this first generation of churches would house about 70 people in it, 60 people. And you can see in that dig how they had taken the walls out and basically this house had been opened up there was nothing but one big room and they had removed the walls and removed the walls so that this church could meet in this one home. And so they would meet in probably the homes of the more wealthier people in this first generation church. Can you imagine not having any road map how to do church? Nobody's done it before and they're just starting. And uh, they're in a city, the city of Corinth, which is just, I mean, you, some of you think Myrtle Beach is kind of wild, but Corinth they had a temple there with a thousand prostitutes, male and female prostitutes, and the way you worshiped God is you went to that temple to be with those prostitutes. Now, you can imagine the problem Paul and the leaders in this Corinthian church had of these people coming to Christ, becoming Christians, and their normal expected lifestyle was that's how you worshiped God. And so they had, I mean, he had quite a challenge on his hands to try to get this church to come along and live the way that Jesus had called us to live. And so he was dealing in the first book of 1 Corinthians, he was dealing with a man who was sleeping with his stepmother, and the church was saying nothing about it. I mean, it was like, yeah, well, that's kind of normal. That's, that's our culture around here. And Paul is like, dude, that's not, that's not normal Christianity. That's not what Jesus has called us, how he's called us to live. And so he tells the church, he says, put this man out. Put him out of the church. They put him under spiritual discipline so that he would repent. I mean, and Paul even prays to turn his body over to Satan. I'm thinking, wow. That's, how would you like the church leader to walk up to you and go, first of all, you're not, you can't come back to church here. And we are praying to turn you over to Satan. I mean, would that put the fear of God? Probably, you would find out whether where your heart is for sure. You'd probably get mad and you'd go, who do you think you are? But if you get to 2 Corinthians, what happened? Paul says, welcome the man back. He repented. He turned and he came back. These are the kind of messy situations Paul was dealing with in these two books. Not only that, the people would show up for church at these houses, and the, the more wealthier people got there early, of course, and they had all the wine and the food, 
because the poor people didn't have that much to contribute. So by the time the poor people in the church got to the, to, to the house for the meeting, the, the more wealthy people had drank all the wine, they had eaten all the food, and they were pretty well looped. Come on in, you know. Let's have church. Let's, let's worship. And, and then the people without much came in. There was no food. There was no wine for communion. There was no... And so Paul had his hands full. And so he's dealing with this church uh, and all of this messy messiness that comes with it. But even in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, in talking about giving, Paul says, On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with their income. In keeping with their income. Do you see that? I don't have enough to give. In keeping with their income. Saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. He's saying basically, hey, give every week, and that way I won't have to take up all these offerings when I get there. Um, one of the things I have really appreciated in the vineyard movement with our churches, when our churches get together in a region or nationally, and we're a small group, we only have about 600 churches in America, but when we get together, uh, I told Karen after our second or third national and regional gatherings, nobody has ever taken an offering up. And I came out of another system where when we had our conferences, there would be three offerings every meeting. Now, there's an offering for this. There's an offering for that. We don't have enough money to cover the expenses of the conference. We've got to have more money. Not one time in almost 16 years have I ever heard at any of our conferences anybody say that. As a matter of fact, on Thursday evenings of our conferences, they give us money to go out to eat. We... We were just up in Maine, and when we went out that Thursday, there's someone standing at the door, and they give us $15 a piece so that we can go. And, and that's from the Vineyard, Association of Vineyard Churches. And Paul is saying, hey, I don't want to have to come in there to Corinth, and I don't want to have to start begging for money. So in 1 Corinthians, he says, you decide according to what you make to put aside a certain amount every week, and then you give that. So that when I get there, I won't have to take up these special offerings in order to meet the needs that we know we're going to have in this early church. This church is probably a part of three communities. Uh, it's kind of like uh, we have Lucas from our church that's up in Shalote. It's a meeting this morning. We have Toller and Jen who are up in Greenville will meet tonight. And then we have Mark and Heidi are down in Beaufort and they're meeting church, our church plants uh, in the Macedonian church that he's going to talk about here in 2 Corinthians, there were three different communities in this church, the Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. And these were very poor churches and persecuted churches. They didn't have much at all, and there were people trying to kill them for their faith. It was not what you call the prime place for a stewardship drive. It wasn't the situation where most people would go, well, let's go in there and see if we can raise some support for our missionaries and do this. These people are already hurting and just barely getting by. And so we're going to join Paul in this second book, 2 Corinthians 8, because evidently there was still some work to be done in this church at Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5, And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. 
entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. You've got a little fill in there in your handout uh, and a pen if you want to track along with me. I want to give three helps I think that would help us when we approach this whole topic of giving. And the first one is this. Giving is an expression of grace. Giving is an expression of grace. He says, and now brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Paul has created a little bit of a healthy competition between the Macedonian church and the Corinthian church. Titus has told Paul that the Corinthian church is a is coming along and that it, it's doing pretty well, but Paul thinks they're not that healthy in, their asp- in the way they approach their giving. And so what he's done is he's created a little, little competition like, well, you guys might be doing okay, but have you heard about the Macedonian church? And they're like, what? Because in Jerusalem, what this offering is about, in Jerusalem they were going through a tough time and the church in Jerusalem needed some support. It needed some financial help. And so the Corinthians think they've come a long way. But Paul comes along and goes, well, maybe you have, but let me show you a church that's really excelling at giving. Giving is an expression of grace. It's not about the amount of money, but the amount of grace that is expressed in our life. In the Old Testament, uh, and Jesus mentioned this as well, there's a word called tithe. And I know some of you just have cold chills when I say that word. But tithe means 10%. Uh, 10% is a good baseline to start with. It's what was in the Old Testament. It was used as a beginning point. That's where Karen and I started our giving back when we were 23, 24 years old. We saw this in Scripture, and we thought, hey, there's a good baseline, 10%. And so we started giving at 10 and just moved on up from there and have been moving up from there since then. And some people go, well, you know, in Jesus... Jesus, we don't have to tithe, we don't have to give, you know, it's, we can do what we want. And then, you know what, that's fine with me. You don't have to give 10%, you can give more. I, I mean, I, I don't want to be a stickler about it, I don't want to be legalistic. I mean, you're free, you're very free. And I, I want to free you this morning, I want to say be free. Don't feel like you have to submit yourself under the Old Testament, you know, the legality of 10%. And Jesus didn't say do away with the tithe. He said don't forget three things. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He said you're doing the tithe. As a matter of fact, you're doing it. You're so legalistic about it. It's incredible. But you're forgetting three big things. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Don't just tithe, but remember this. You need to give yourself to justice. Give yourself to mercy. And give yourself to faithfulness. And I have a question about this whole thing for you. Did Jesus ever lower the bar when he came in any area of life? I mean, think about this. When we talk about the tithe in the Old Testament and, and all this, did Jesus ever lower the bar? I mean, did, is it mean, like, oh, I'm free now. I don't, have to, I don't have to do anything. If you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, you go back to Matthew 5 through 8, you go back to the Beatitudes, Jesus says, hey, in the Old Testament... God said, don't murder, right? Don't murder anyone. But what did Jesus say to do? Don't even get so angry in your heart you want to kill somebody. Does that sound like a lowering of the bar? Don't even let your attitude go there. He said in the Old Testament, don't commit adultery, right? 
Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's Old Testament. What did Jesus say? Don't even have lust in your heart. Is that a lowering of the bar? Does that sound like Jesus has washed it all out so we can just be that gooey middle thing? In the Old Testament, we're told to love our neighbor. But Jesus said what? Love your enemies. Is that a lowering of the bar? Does that sound like Jesus is kicking it back a notch and taking... It seems like to me that as we step in to follow Jesus, the bar of the kingdom goes incredibly high to the point that we can't do it without grace. To the point that when we do give as God has called us to give, it is a gracious act. It is something God has done in our hearts and has changed us in such a way that we express the grace of God that God has poured out on the cross for us. Grace doesn't simply get by. When we act graciously towards one another, we're not just getting by, we do more than get by. The cross did more than just slip us in to the kingdom. And so giving is a gracious act. I read this story of a, this couple, Bob and Melinda Harvey, and they, this is a quote from them it said our life purpose for giving is as follows help fulfill the great commission by giving 50% of our annual income to Christian causes that have the greatest leverage 50% to do this we must maximize our income consult with people knowledgeable about ministry and select the best organizations to support we have averaged giving 33% for the last 15 years And in the most recent two years, we have moved to 50% of our gross income. Now, you don't do that by making more money. You do that by adjusting your lifestyle. That's how you do that. But grace, as in second and third verse of our text today, empowers us to live sacrificially out of the most severe trial, this Macedonian church, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty Welled up in what? Rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. Nobody had to pressure them. It wasn't, let's send the basket around one more time. Oh, that's not quite enough. Let's go again. No, it was on their own, out of their own heart, out of the grace of God that had been poured out in their lives. They gave. You see, your ability to give is not dependent on how much you have, but how much grace is operating in your life. The Macedonians didn't have much money. They didn't have much to give, but yet they gave as much as they could and a little more. I think that's beautiful. As much as they could and a little more. That's grace. They gave even beyond their ability. That's gracious giving. And look at these seemingly contradictory terms in this this verse severe trial overflowing joy i mean this is an upside down kingdom the kingdom of god severe trial overflowing joy extreme poverty rich generosity it's not about what you how much you have it's not about how much you have the more severe the trial in our lives the more precious the giving becomes true And that's where the joy comes from. Are you a joyful giver? I mean, does it just bring you joy to be able to give? Extreme poverty, 
rich generosity. Can you see how Paul's using these seemingly opposite pole descriptions? Severe trial, overflowing joy. Extreme poverty, rich generosity. That's the kingdom life. That's the life of the kingdom of God. And the fact of the matter is that we think, if I could make more money, I could give more. I don't know how many times I've heard that. You know, if we think that our giving, our, the faithful giving, our faithful giving is dependent on how much we make. But the fact of the matter is, the more we make, especially after we get across, to, I think it's around sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year. Once we break that point, our percentage of giving starts going down, 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 until once you get over a hundred, hundred fifty thousand dollars, you. I think the average is 4.6%, something like that. And then as you make more, as you get wealthy, which those people don't consider themselves wealthy making more, that much, it starts dropping until it goes on down to 3%. So it's just not true that the more we make, the more we can give. Because it's not about the amount. It's about the heart. You can only give what you have. And that's all that God expects, is to give what we have, to give of what he has given us. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, the Methodist church, the great 18th century church founder, he limited his expenses so that he could give more to the poor. And uh, I can imagine what life was like back then on the horseback and riding down the coast and, and over in England before he came here. And uh, but he did it to such a degree, he, he gave away so much of his income that the English tax commission investigated him in 1776. They said, no one can live the way you're living. There's no way you can, you can do life. You've got to be hiding some silver plates somewhere in your house, some silver chalices. And so the tax commission came into his house and searched his home looking for silver plates and chalices. Where do you put the money, John? Where do you put the money? I know you got more money than this. And they actually, they didn't find it. And his income steadily went up throughout his life, and though he kept his expenses at the same level, he adjusted his lifestyle. When he died at the age of 87 in 1791, that's a pretty good age in 1791, he had given away almost all of the 30,000 pounds that he had made during his life. 30,000 pounds, if we looked at it, about $60,000, something like that. We think that's not a whole lot, but if you go back to that time period and bring it up to now, that's about $1.463 million. $1,463,000, of which Wesley gave away almost all of it. He kept his living expenses right where, it, and he never increased it so he could give away more. And this is what he said near the end of his life. I cannot help leaving my books behind me whenever God calls me hence, but in every other respect, my own hands will be my executors. He gave away his money. He didn't leave it to the state to do it. Your second one there is we forget that giving is a privilege. It's an expression of grace in our life, in our lives, but it is also a privilege. Verse 4 in our text, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege, for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. It's a privilege to give. I don't know why we get in such a tiff when we start talking about giving in church. And I've been in some, I don't get heated about it, but some people get very upset when you start talking about church and money. I don't know why we get upset about the privilege of being able to give. 
Because it is just that. It's worship. When we give of what God has given us, it's worship when we give it back. And listen, I have to be honest with you. If you don't want to take, if you don't want to participate and be gracious and take advantage and, and of the privilege that the Holy Spirit invites us into in giving, then don't. It's like worship. You don't want to worship God? Don't. Don't take advantage of the privilege. It's a privilege to be able to participate and to give what God has given us. And it's an act of worship whenever we do this. I want to worship myself. That's one of our mission, missions here is to learn to worship God with passion. I want to be able to worship God. Not, I want to be able to worship Him more in our songs as we sing together. Absolutely. Do you realize that in worship, we get to say the same thing about God together? We get to sing songs. We're in perfect unity when we worship together. We say the same things. How many places in life do you get to do that? How many opportunities and the privilege do you get to join with a group of other people and say the same thing about the same God that you serve or that you want to come to know? What a privilege. And what a privilege to give and to give to see that people or preach the gospel, to give to see that the poor are fed, give to see that wells are drilled, to see that churches are established. It's a privilege, and it's our act of worship. In the fifth verse there is, Paul said to the Corinthian church, and they did not do as we expected. In other words, it was a surprise to them that the Macedonian church gave the way they did. But he says this, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. Maybe that's why we struggle with this. Maybe we haven't given ourselves first to the Lord. And that's why when we talk about this thing, we talk about giving, it's so difficult. Maybe that's why, you know, we get mad. Preacher's trying to get my money. Keep it. Keep it. There are enough people here who love to give. Keep it. Maybe we need to give ourselves to the Lord first so that we know anything and everything we've been given has been given to us by Him. Romans 12.1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy and of His grace to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And I say this almost every Sunday that when we take an offering up here, it's just like singing another worship song. That's what we're doing. We're saying, God, thank you for the food on my table. Thank you for giving me a place to live. Thank you that I'm taken care of. And I'm going to sing a refrain of worship to you. And here it is. Here is a verse from my life to say, I appreciate you. Thank you for the privilege of being able to give, Lord. Thank you. Maybe we need to start by giving ourselves It's a humbling thing to receive from someone who has less than you do. Have you ever had that happen to you? Talking about the privilege of giving. Because some of us think that giving is a luxury of the rich when it's really a privilege of the poor. And if you have ever been on the receiving end of someone who was in deep need, like this Macedonian church given to the Jerusalem church, then you know what that treasure is that they give to you. I was in Thailand a number of years ago and I was preaching in this hut out in the middle of, up in the mountains above Chiang Mai. Uh, little village, all grass huts, 
dirt roads, dirt floor in this little grass hut. Maybe 30 people in this hut that Sunday. I had an interpreter with me, and I'm dogs are, you've heard me say this before, dogs are laying all over my feet. You know, they, came, they just walk into the service, and they sit down, and then they get bored, and they walk out. And... Um, <laughs> Well, they're sitting around. People are coming in and out. And, and after I finished preaching the sermon, some of the elders from the village came over and invited us to go eat. And so I'm with this interpreter, and so we go to this hut to eat. And uh, they put this some kind of animal on the <laughs> some kind of animal out on the table, and uh, in this cloudy bit of water. And uh, and they smile and they do this, you know, to me. And I look over at my, you know, my friend, and I'm going, and he looks at me, and he goes, eat it. <laughs> and then I found out it was the only chicken in the whole village. It was the only chicken. I mean, they had no other meat. After this chicken was killed, and they fed it, they would not eat till I ate. I didn't want that. I was really uncomfortable with it. But then you begin to know that it's the poor. It's the poor that exercise their privilege to give more than anyone. Years ago, a friend of mine, Jack Frost, who was a part of, you know, gosh, this has been many years ago, before he had this worldwide ministry, his wife, Tricia, uh, and his family still have it going on. But at the time that we first got to know Jack, Jack was with the Salvation Army, he and Tricia, and they came to our church, and we became uh, really good friends, and I was a worship pastor at that time, and Jack invited me to go to the Salvation Army and teach on worship. He said, I really want, really want our people to learn what it means to worship God, to engage with God. And, and I, knew, I knew that in this church, they, they had nothing. I mean, there was people that attended this church were in desperate need. But I went on a Thursday night. I went maybe three nights, I think, on Thursday night, and I taught, led worship, taught on worship. And at the end, the, at the end of the little uh, conference that I was doing with them, one of them, one of the church walked up to me with an envelope and put it in my hand, and I could see there were some dollar bills in it, and I was just like, no, 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 no. I mean, it had cost me nothing to go there. And I didn't, I looked over at Jack, and I said, Jack, I can't take this. I can't, see, I can't do it. I mean, it, it, it could have, it was like a million dollars from these people. I mean, and Jack says, no, they've been saving. They saved for two months before you came to do this. When I told them you were coming, they began to save so they could bless you. I think it was $86 maybe in that envelope. That's the treasure. It's not about the amount. It's about the grace that operates in our life through giving. Psalms 24.1 says, the earth is the Lord's. And everything in it, the world and all who live in it, it's all his. I can't remember who said this, but someone once said that we're most like God when we give. Because that's what he does, he gives. And lastly, your last fill in there is this. Giving is an act of obedience. It's an expression of grace, it's a privilege, and it's an act of of obedience, verse 5, and they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. An act of obedience. I think it was Jeff mentioned in his, in his uh, 
devotions one morning, a passage in the Old Testament where they were trying to raise funds for the temple and that it had gotten, people had given so much that you basically had to stop them. Can you imagine that in a church? I've never heard of that before. But in Ex, even in Exodus 36, 5, it says that the people were bringing more than enough for doing the work of the Lord. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine one Sunday you look down and you go, oh man, we took up too much. Wow, send it back, send it back. You guys take a few dollars back out because it's just too much, giving too much. Over in 1 Chronicles 29, 14, David is worshiping the Lord and he's saying, look, how could this be that the people of God have in their heart to be so obedient and express such graciousness to give this amount? Verse 5, and they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. It's God's will that we give. It's a part of us growing up and being mature as followers of Christ. If you're a part of the unaffiliated as far as being a part of the church and all, look, don't worry about it, okay? But those of us who are trying to follow hard after Jesus, believe me, Jesus is after our giving. He's after our heart. He's after how we live that part of our life. Is Jesus the Lord over that area of our life? Is he? Is he the Lord or is our stuff, ourselves, what? Who is the Lord over our giving? In that famous verse in Malachi 3.8, I mean, it, it says what it says. It says you can actually rob God by not being obedient to God. Imagine that. And then God says something that's really crazy to me. He says, test me, try me. And it, Basically, look, be obedient and see what I'll do. Test me and see what I'll do. Now, I'm not one theologically that believes that if you give money, you get money back, but I believe you get back from God. I believe that God will take care of whatever way. Maybe it's more joy, like they were able to give joy in the midst of their poverty, whereas before they may have been depressed. Now in their giving, they are happy that they have participated in something that is worthwhile. But God does pay back and even says, test me and see if it's not true. Try me. Try me and see if it's not true. None of us need to feel guilty for what we don't have to give. Nobody in here should say, I wish I had more to give. You don't have to feel that way, okay? You have what God has given you. Whatever you have in your hands, whatever you have in your resources, your time, your bank account, your talents, your abilities is what God has given you. That is what you give. You give of what you have. So it's not that you don't have enough to give because if you have anything, you have something to give. And so we can give joyfully. We can smile. The Macedonian church went way beyond what was expected of them. And they gave joyously out of their situation of poverty. We start where we are. We start by being gracious in our giving and we approach giving as a privilege, as an expression of grace. We become disciples of Jesus by being obedient and learning to be obedient in our giving. I want to close this out with a story from a very unlikely person. Let him preach the sermon and that is Stephen King. Anybody know Stephen King? <laughs> Uh, this is, uh, I read this quote and I was like, wow. Uh, here's, he's an author for those of you who don't know and he writes some scary stuff. <laughs> but
but he's also done some pretty touching, uh, made some, written some very touching stuff as well. But here's Stephen's words. A couple of years ago, I found out what you can't take it with you means. I found out why I was lying in a ditch at the side of a country road covered with mud and blood and with the tibia of my right leg poking out the side of my jeans like a branch of a tree taken down in a thunderstorm. I had a MasterCard in my wallet, but when you're lying in a ditch with broken glass in your hair, no one accepts MasterCard. We come in naked and broke. We may be dressed when we go out, but we're just as broke. Warren Buffett, going to go broke. Bill Gates, going out broke. Tom Hanks, going out broke. Steve King, broke. Not a crying dime. All the money you earn, all the stocks you buy, all the mutual funds you trade, all of that is mostly smoke and mirrors. It's still going to be a quarter past getting late, whether you tell the time on a Timex or a Rolex. So I want you to consider making your life one long gift to others. And why not? All you have is on lawn anyway. All that lasts is what you pass on. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and were perhaps even challenged in some way to continue pursuing a closer relationship with God through Jesus. Here at Seacoast Vineyard Church, our vision is to worship God with passion, to reach out in Jesus' name with compassion, and to mature as a people of power and purpose. For more information, including our location and gathering times, visit www.seacoastvineyard.com.